Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 9 tonight as we uh, continue a, a study that we uh, began a, a little while ago. We've not really been in it since October, so we're going to kick the year off with a return to our 1 Samuel Bible study, a new section. Um, we, we called the first eight chapters uh, Rising Kingdom as we saw God build something um, out of nothing or build something from uh, the foundation that, that was fractured and, and, and things had went uh, not went the way he had intended them to go when he sent the people of Israel into the promised land. Uh, but we're going to see uh, something rise up from that place, uh, and, and it's really going to be the tale of two kingdoms, uh, a dueling kingdoms, if you will, um, as man attempts to build his ideal kingdom, but God is in the background building his kingdom. And the people of Israel are going to have to make a choice. Um, and uh, we're going to see tonight that they choose uh, not God's will, uh, not what God had told them that they should choose. They choose their way. They choose man's way, but they're going to learn a lesson. And it's going to be a hard lesson, uh, a lesson that I think we can learn and hopefully uh, not repeat the mistake that they've made. But no doubt we've made that same mistake, and we will make that same mistake, but this will show us the way uh, forward. So First uh, Samuel uh, 9 will be kind of the beginning of this. We'll, we'll look back at chapter 8 and read a single verse that uh, set the stage for this new section uh, in just a minute. But if you haven't been here, or it's been a while, we did a whole prophecy thing, we did Christmas. So I'm, just for five minutes, I want to make sure we all know what, what's going on um, in, at this point in the history of Israel. So uh, the book opens up, and it's really a continuation of the story that began in the book of Judges. So y'all know the story. Moses leads him out of the, uh, the slavery. Uh, Joshua leads leads them into the promised land, but then Joshua dies, and they don't have a leader. Uh, they have judges that, that are serving in the individual tribes, but they have no central leader, and the nation is just completely uh, forgotten the Lord, and they've turned to pagan gods and to idols, and, and, and I can't, I'm not overstating this, it's a pretty grim and dire situation for the nation of Israel. I would dare say there's not a more, uh, a more just lost Israel than the Israel that we open up to in 1 Samuel. Uh, they get into some bad places later on in the, in the Old Testament, but this is as, as lost as they could be. And, and, and Judges uh, gives us kind of the indictment over this generation when it ends. Judges chapter 21 ends the book by saying, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that's not saying that had they had a man, had a, had, they had a man to be their king, they think it would be better. Uh, in the generation of the judges, they knew that God was their king. God was the one who ruled and reigned. God was the one that was giving the leadership to the judges. God was their king, yet they did not respect him as king. They did not look to him as king. They did not serve him as king. They did what was right in their own eyes. And, of course, that is what led to the mess that you can read about in the book of Judges and that we read about as 1 Samuel begins. So the story begins, 1 Samuel, Israel's in a bad place, as distant from God as they possibly could be. And the two things on display in chapter 1 um, are that the priesthood is corrupt, which of course the priesthood is the connection with God. So if the priesthood's corrupt, what connection do they have with God? Not much. Uh, the priesthood is corrupt and the moral line has been blurred. The moral lines, the morality of Israel is completely gone. Uh, so case in point, chapter one begins with a showcase of just how much of a joke the temple system has become and just how broken down the family unit had become. So you have a priest named Eli who is openly mocking 
liking the people who are coming to pray. They're not finding someone who's leading them and comforting them and, and an example to follow. They find a man who literally is laughing at people that are trying to talk to God, who is literally accusing people of being drunk when he is the one who's acting as if he is drunk. And also, uh, his sons who are really, he's passing the torch, his sons, they are completely corrupt. They are mishandling the sacrifices. They are literally preying on the people, not with an A, but with an E. They are literally preying on the people who are coming in with sinful intent. They're courting some of the women that are coming in and convincing them that they need to, you know, uh, you know commit sin with them. They're, they're taking advantage of the men and, and, and bribing them and, and, and upcharging the, the, as they're buying sacrifices. It's a completely mess of a system. There's no, God is nowhere involved in it at all. Yet this is the, the, the religion of the nation. This is the only representation of God the nation has. And Eli and his sons are uh, rebuked by God. And of course, before you get through chapter 5, they're all dead uh, because they had completely mishandled uh, the, 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 the position they were placed in. And on top of that, not only is the priesthood corrupt, but the moral morality has completely been thrown out the window. Uh, the, the family unit is, is completely broken down. So in chapter 1, remember, you have a man coming to worship and he has his two wives with him. Which should be the, which is a red flag that, hey, things are not going as they should in the nation of Israel. The nation that was supposed to show people what morals were and how you should live as a, as, as a godly man, a godly woman. Here comes a guy into the house of God with his two wives. Uh, which again, God wasn't anywhere uh, close to that. And, and you say, well, that's just how it was back in those days. God never, ever, ever approved that kind of behavior. The Old Testament condemns that very clearly. So when you read about the kings that had multiple wives, there's nowhere where God's saying, it's okay, it's the Old Testament. It was wrong, it's wrong now, it was wrong then, right? So they didn't get a pass just because it was 3,000 years ago. So here comes a guy into the house of God with his two wives, and then you find out the reason why he married another wife was because his first wife, Hannah, couldn't have kids. So his solution was, I'll just replace her. But in the culture that, that, that was back then, um, women had no rights. And for a woman to be to, to divorce, you had no choice to divorce your husband. And if your husband, you know, divorced you, you'd be completely at the mercy of, of, of terrible, terrible lifestyle choices. So Hannah was forced to stay with her husband. And, and, and again, he had no, no remorse in, in his behavior. So... The, the, the way we're supposed to read this is 1 Samuel opens is the priesthood's corrupt, the family's broken down, the nation of Israel is completely lost. Completely lost. So, it's a mess, a mess that was totally avoidable because Moses and Joshua gave them everything they needed and they did not follow God's will or God's way. So, things looked pretty hopeless for the nation from God's house to every house. Uh, the nation was weak and had no sense a direction until God heard the prayers of the aforementioned woman, the aforementioned barren woman, Hannah, and God gave Hannah a son. Of course, his name was Samuel. He's the one writing the book. Uh, little did everyone know, and of course, off of everyone's radar, Samuel is the hope for the nation, and he is going to lead the nation in revival. So we get the backstory about how lost Israel was. We hear about Samuel being dedicated to the temple. Uh, Samuel grows up and begins to hear from the Lord. Samuel becomes Israel's judge. He travels around the nation, instructing them, uniting them around God's word, leading them in repentance and rededication. But as time goes on, the people of Israel begin to wonder if they don't need more than just a spiritual revival. 
And this happens in every, happens in our country, happens in every country. At first they think, you know, what we, what we really need is God. But then they begin to look around and they begin to look at all the other nations and they begin to wonder, well, maybe we need more than just God. Maybe we need more than just a strong spiritual backbone. Uh, there's this groundswell demand for a political revolution. From the beginning, Israel was never meant to have a king. They were not like other nations. They were under God. And if only they stayed faithful to God, they would have a supernatural hand upon them, leadership and protection from God, unlike any other nation, any other country. Yet, as they watched other nations, as they saw them develop and thrive, Israel wanted to be just like every other nation. They wanted a king so badly. So they come to Samuel. And this, is, this really blows my mind. We didn't talk about this a few weeks ago, but I, I think it's worth talking about. They come to Samuel, and just as things were looking up, just as they were on the brink of revival, and as Samuel was leading them into serving God and knowing God and following God, they come to Samuel, and they cut off the spirit of revival at the root, and they demand that Samuel... Now, think about this. This nation had no connection to God before Samuel. The corrupt priesthood wasn't giving them any connection with God. Samuel is the lifeline. Samuel is the hope for the nation. Samuel is talking to God and talking from God and for God. And they come to Samuel, and they say, Samuel... You've got that special connection to God. We know that you talk to God. We know he talks to you. So, hey, Samuel, can you give God a message for us? Tell him we want a king. Hey, Samuel, we, we appreciate your leadership. We appreciate your preaching. We appreciate your, your, your messages. But we would rather you just give us a king and you go away. Because we don't really think God is the most important thing for us. We don't really think a king, uh, uh, God is the most essential thing in our lives. We want a king. We want a strong government. We want an economy that thrives. We want a king. We don't think you or your God are all that important. Unless you can give us what we want. And we'll throw God a bone every once in a while but only if he does what we want him to do. Can you imagine that kind of posture before God? It's not hard to imagine because we kind of have that same attitude sometimes. Maybe not in that defiant way that they did, but we've, we've been that way before. So they come to God, they recognize that Samuel was their line of communication to God, and instead of following his lead, they demand that he listen to them. I tell you, we really need to pause here at the beginning of this year and get a, get a, a load of this insane premise that we are all guilty of following in, in some way, shape, or form. And, and I want to talk for just a minute about the true purpose and the true utility of prayer. Prayer is something that is meant to tune us into God's will. Yet we often make it an opportunity to clue God into our will. Do you hear that? We often forget that prayer is about getting God's will to us, and we, can, we convince ourselves that prayer is about getting our will to God. Now, I'm not saying and not taking away from the fact that prayer can be and is a way to bring our worries and our burdens to God. But even with that, the primary purpose of prayer has never been to inform God of what we need and convince him of our way. Prayer has always been about sinking our hearts and our minds with his will in submitting to what he has for us. 
That's always what prayer is about. If you have your Bibles open, if you look back at chapter 8, I just want you to just get a load of the audacity that these people have when they come to Samuel and they say, in in verse number 6, he repeats it, give us a king to judge us. I just want you to think about the audacity these people had. They come to Samuel. He's the only one that can talk to God. He's the only one that's ever spoken on behalf of God in their generation. And they come to him instead of saying, okay, Samuel, pray for us that we might hear God's will and do God's will. They come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, since you and God talk all the time, tell him we want a king or otherwise we have no use for him in our lives. Have you ever, have you ever begin to look at God as if he's only good to you for what he can give you? If we're not careful, God becomes that kind of a commodity to us. They come to God and say, God, give us a king. See you later. They didn't pray as the Bible teaches us to pray. They didn't pray as Jesus taught us to pray. And y'all know what the Bible, how the Bible teaches us to pray, but, but it bears looking at Matthew chapter nine or Matthew chapter six. Jesus says, pray like this. Our father in heaven hallowed be your name. So get the, get the idea that there is a God in heaven who is your heavenly father. He loves you more than anything else in the world. He knows what's best for you because what do fathers do? A good father knows what's best for his kids. So entrust your life into his hands. Hallowed be his name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That is the prayer. That is the backbone of any prayer. And if any prayer does not start there, it's, it's really not praying, it's just wishing. You hear that? If we go to God with any other posture, we're not really praying. We're rubbing some lamp and hoping a genie pops out and hoping that it does what we want it to do. But that's not how prayer works. Prayer is, Father in heaven, you are good, you are awesome, you are gracious, you you have a great will for me, you have the best in mind for me, your kingdom come, your will be done. That is what prayer is all about, and that is the heart of prayer. And if we get anything right in 2024, it needs to be this. You want to be at the right place for this year? It comes down to this mindset. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name because it's all about you. It's all for you. It's all from you. Your kingdom come. That means my kingdom is not the most important thing in this, in, in this, in this world, right? My kingdom is small and insignificant and my kingdom is going to come today and go tomorrow. But your kingdom is everlasting. So I pray for your kingdom to come, your will to be done, which means that my will has to be gone. Right? Have you ever tried to obey two people at the same time? It usually doesn't work. Right? You can't obey your will and God's will because your will usually is opposed to God's will and and maybe not head-to-head opposed, but not always the same. So your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We'll get to that part in a minute. But but Jesus, Jesus himself followed this this model. He practiced what he preached in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus didn't want to suffer the way he was going to have to suffer because in his flesh, it was going to be awful. And he was going to lose that connection to his father that he always had had. He didn't want to go that way in his flesh. He didn't want to go that way in the here and now, in the temporary. But he submitted his will to his heavenly father, which is what we must do. 
Now, this isn't some fatalism mindset where you just say, you know what, life isn't going to be the way I want it to go. I guess I just need to give up and let, it, let, it, let, let, that, let that pass. This is not some defeatist attitude. Because Jesus knew the pathway to victory would come by whatever means that his father had designed and determined. And Jesus knew and he trusted that if, the, if his father intended a cross to be in his future, then there must be something on the other side of that cross that he needed to go through the cross to get to. And he trusted God. And he entrusted his life into God's hands. Nevertheless, not mine but thine is what he prayed. We've got to have this same outlook as we pray for our lives and our church and our country this year. When our minds are clear and we're thinking straight, may we never come to God and say what these people said. Hey God, this is what has to happen in order for me and you to be good. That, that, just, that just can't be our attitude. We bring our lives, we bring our wills, we lay them down at God's altar and we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what that confession says. That the way things are on earth are not near as good and as perfect as they are in heaven. And we need things to be like they are in heaven on earth. So, so... For us to force an earthly view on a heavenly God, how do you think that's going to work out? Do, do you hear? Do you understand that? As it is in heaven, that's the confession that God, I don't know how it is in heaven. I know it's better than it is here. And for us to go to God and say, God, this is how I think it should be done through earth, with an earthly mind, with an earthly lens, with an earthly perspective, how in the world do we suppose that that's going to be a better option than what God has in store? It just isn't. I know that it takes a lot more trust to say God as it is in heaven because we don't know how, how it is in heaven. We just know it's better, which should be enough to convince us. But forcing an earthly view on a heavenly God will never work out. God refuses to do it that way, actually, and he'll just take his hands off and say, okay, if you want a world where I'm not in charge, well, here you go. And he'll be there to bail you out when you come crying for help. He always is. But... Sometimes it takes a while for us to get to that place of admitting that. So a good memory verse for us, if it's not already on your list or not already in your minds, is Psalm 37 verse 4, where David says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, what that means is, is, is not that if you just you know, tell God how much you love him, he's just going to do whatever you want him to do. That verse tells us that if we lean into God and seek his will, he, if we delight in him, as in we seek him as our one and only desire, we make him our one and only uh, king and our true affection, he will show us what's best and he will line up our hearts with what we actually need. He will put in our hearts desires that will then honor him and glorify him and that will be in line with his will. So that's what Jesus means. You know, when Jesus says, ask and it will be given, seek and you'll find it, knock and you'll be open. Jesus is talking to people that are already doing this. That's why when Jesus, that's why Jesus says, if you ask, I'll, you know, with a grain of mustard seed faith, I'll, it'll be given to you. Move this mountain. Because if you come to God and you've delighted in him and you're seeking his will, then he will surely work his will out in your life. But this is required first. Because when we come to God with those kind of prayers, we already are seeking as he has prescripted it, prescribed it as he has shown us. We will line up our hearts with him and he will give us what we 
need. So this year, can we make this goal, this our goal? Delight ourselves in the Lord. And how do you delight yourself? You read his word. You sing his songs. You gather with his people. You, uh, you spend time with him and you lean into him and you allow your affection for him to grow and you feed that affection or that appetite and you lean into that and you foster that so that whenever you think, whenever you begin to think, hey, what would be best for me? What would be good for me? You are already informed by and influenced by what God's word says. And the spirit of God, the supernatural influence of God will begin to lead you in that right direction. But know this very clearly. If we spend our time, if we fill our minds and our heads and our hearts up with things of this world, we'll have this confliction going on. We'll have this dueling, uh, you know, perspectives as this is what God wants, but this is what the world wants. So we've got to, you know, detox ourselves from this world. And, 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 and that's why church is important. That's why worship is important. That's why Bible studies are important. Because it gets us under the influence of God. And it gets us under the, the influence of what we need to be hearing. So it, it's, there's a battle every single moment of every single day. And it all comes down to what we are listening to and what we are giving our affection to. And we are very easily swayed. But if we delight ourselves to the Lord, we will, no long, we will not come to, the, to God like they did. We won't demand God to do what we want him to do. We will delight and we will see the desires come to our heart. Now, in this instance, we know that the people of Israel, they didn't do this. Uh, and God gives them what they asked for. And the, the, the downward spiral for Israel continues. Uh, in some ways, it, it's even worse. It's an even worse season uh, of the nation because they are actually convinced that what they have chosen and what they are pursuing is right and admirable. Whereas before Samuel came on the scene, they were just in darkness and they were oblivious. But now they've took a bite of religion and they've mixed it with their own selfish desires, which can be even worse case. Of course, eventually Samuel's presence will get through to the right people and exposure to God is always better than none. But this is something that happens a lot and something that we need to be mindful of. That often, it can happen very easily that we begin to pursue a relationship with God for our own glory and our own gain. And it comes down to this. It comes down to something called means to an end. Y'all know what that phrase means, right? That something is a pathway to something else. So either we see God as a means to our end, as a means to our glory, as a means to our kingdom, or we render our lives as a means to his end. Do you see that? So it, it depends on where you're putting God at in that equation. If God is the end, if God is the glory, if God is the goal, then we are the means, as in we are giving our lives to him to get to the end that he wants. But if we ever put God as the means to our end, then that is not faith, and that is not a relationship. That is just some sort of religious mixture that we've made up, trying to manipulate him, and, and there's a big difference. Eventually, the nation will choose the right way, but they're going to have to learn a hard lesson. And that lesson comes by the hand of a man named Saul. Chapter 9 introduces us to Saul. And at first, it seems like he might be the man for the job. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was, uh, was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacorath, the son of Appiah, a Benjaminite, a man of power. So underline that. This guy had power. His family had power. This, this family was a somebody uh, in their land. Automatically made them a little bit more uh, important. 
He had a choice and handsome son. So he had a chosen son, a handsome son. His name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than, than he among the children of Israel. His shoulders were upward. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? This introduction to Saul is a bit of a quandary to deal with, and the whole chapter is tough to navigate and teach. It appears that Saul is exactly what the doctor ordered, exactly what the nation wanted and needed. But we cannot forget what chapter 8 taught us. It's important when we read the Bible, make sure if you're reading chapter 9 of a book, make sure you read chapter 8, because chapter 8 might be important for what chapter 9 has in store, right? You don't read it in a vacuum. There's always context. So chapter 8 tells us this was not God's will. The nation was out of line, out of God's will. They were asking for a king. They were not supposed to ask for a king. God said, I'll give you one, but you're not gonna, this isn't going to be good. So we cannot be wooed by the description and story of Saul and forget that none of this was supposed to be part of God's perfect will. Can we establish that? But I got to think that I think these two verses are a test to the reader's heart. They're here to catch us. Are we paying attention or are we sleeping? Are we easily convinced when we already know, hey, this shouldn't be, this isn't God's will? Will we go from chapter 8's disapproval of their request and be charmed by this colorful description of this man and suppose that this is what's right for Israel? Or will we take all this with caution and refuse to be fooled by the presentation and by the appearance of what's right? Because as the proverb says, there is a way that seems right, but the end of it is death. So we should immediately be on guard and suspicious as the text tells us Saul came from power, Saul was handsome, Saul stood out above the rest, he was a rich guy, he was a powerful man, he was a, charisma, a charismatic man, he had the looks and he had the stature. So, so we should be on guard because we've read chapter 8, haven't we? We shouldn't be fooled by this, even though it sounds really good. Here's the thing. The devil is a master at distracting and deceiving God's people with fleshly, material, superficial things. What did we read about on Sunday? John 10, 10, what does it tell us? The enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. And you know how he does the stealing and the killing and how he does the destroying? He distracts us and deceives us. Because there's a world where we read chapter 9 and we think, wow, this guy has power, this guy has looks, this, guy's, this guy has strength. He's the one. Lord, thank you for giving us what we wanted the whole time. But we read chapter 8, didn't we? We know that this was not God's will. But here comes this deceitful package. This distracting package. And something in us lights up and says, that's the guy. But we know better. Satan's tactics are clear. Now, here's what he wants to do. He has two options as he tries to destroy your relationship with God. He wants to cause you to shift your faith. He wants to cause you to shift your faith out of God into something else. So that's how he steals your faith. He wants to take your faith out of God into something else that looks like it's strong enough and good enough to support you. He wants to steal your faith from God and have you put it in something that looks strong and looks like it can handle you and feels good, but you know better. You should know better. He wants to steal your faith. 
shift your faith. Or he wants to kill, cause you to lose your faith because of something that disturbs you and something that troubles you. Do you see his, his two, two, two approaches? He either wants to make you move your faith out of God into something else or cause you to lose your faith because you get so upset because something that happens that seems to suggest that God isn't in control anymore. So how does Satan destroy us? How does he destroy our relationship with God? He either steals our faith or kills our faith. He causes you to shift your faith or causes you to lose your faith. You follow me? So in this instance, he's going to lure Israel's faith out of God into this man. This man! Because he looks good and seems like he'd be a strong king. Now, I'm not going to do this every service, so don't, don't get mad at me. I know they did this Sunday for a little bit. I've got to do it again today because it is an election year, and you'll hear me say that a lot, but every sermon is not going to be about this, but I've got to say this. I know I'd be a lot more popular if I just preached that one party's bad and one party's good, but I can't do that because there's a lot of preachers out there that make clowns of themselves and betray their faith every time this, every election year, and they make it seem like if this doesn't happen, we lose, but God is bigger than that. There's nothing wrong with supporting and voting for a man because you think he's a, he or she is a better option than the other. Nothing wrong with that. You should do that. But by no means, and y'all have never done this, but there's people out there that do. I watched them panic. I watched them pull their hair out a lot the last, however long I've been alive. I've seen it happen in real time. I've been in churches the day after elections, and people are just, oh my God, what are we going to do? And I'm not trying to make light of your concern. I get it. It's, it's not easy. I, I, I get it. But you're better than that. We're better than that. By no means shift your faith to a man or a woman, right? Because of how good they look and how powerful they are and how strong they seem. Don't do that. And you know how you can tell if you've shifted your faith? You know how you can tell if you've moved your faith out of God into something else? Because your peace and your joy come from the person or the place and not from God. You hear me? When, you, when your peace and joy are coming from an institution or a person and not from God, then you've already, you've already lost. Now, this is important come November, come October, November. Pray, pray that God's will be done. Vote for as close to God's word as possible and leave it into his hands. And may the people of God never be found singing the praises of man and never be found pulling their hair out because of a man. It's just not a good look. It's just not a good look. And, and y'all know this, but some, uh, you know, nine months from now, somebody's going to be beside you and they're going to be on the brink of pulling their hair out or on the brink of, 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 of shifting their faith. And you're going to remind them, hey, hey, we don't do that. Hey, we don't take the bait. Israel, unfortunately, did. But listen, if we, if we shift our faith, if we lose our faith, then we've been chewed up and spit out by the enemy. Because what does he do? He causes you to shift your faith or lose your faith. And what happens if you do either? Your faith is destroyed. So be, be mindful of that. Israel took the bait. And they think, oh my goodness, we have a handsome, tall, rich, strong man. Did they, just, did, they, did they forget the whole time? The whole time they had an awesome, mighty, and good God? The whole time. Did God all of a sudden wake up in chapter 9, verse 1 and say, oh wow, a rich, handsome, strong man, I'm back. No. God was there the whole time. 
If only they had rested in him sooner. If only they had found peace from him and joy from him and not waited for some cheap imitation. Because y'all know the story. Saul's not the guy. Saul's not it. Now, was there a world where God could have used Saul and could have, and Saul could have admitted, hey, God, guys, don't look at me. I know I'm rich. I know I'm good looking. I know I'm powerful. I know I'm, I've got all the, the things you want. But don't look at me. Is there a world where Saul says to people on, on the stage, hey, give it to God. Give the glory to God. I deflect my, my glory to him. Is there a world where Saul does that? Yes, there could have been. There could have been. And Samuel... If you read the story, we're not going to get into this tonight because there's a whole lot of stuff. But Samuel goes and finds Saul. And Samuel is trying to make the best of a bad situation. Samuel knows this isn't God's will. Samuel's not happy about it. He's upset, very upset about it. But Samuel's going to get face to face with Saul. And he says, he's going to look at Saul. And he says, listen, Saul, I know you got money. I know you got power. I know you got looks. I know you got strength. But I need to talk to you man to man from God to you. You're about to be given this situation that anybody would die for in this country. Make sure you don't blow it. No, spoiler alert, he blows it. But look down at verse number 24. In verse 24, at the end of that verse, it says that Saul ate with Samuel. So Samuel invites Saul basically to a, to a cookout, to a, to a campfire. It's a whole long story. Samuel finds Saul. God says, hey, this is the guy. And the nation's phoning over him. Oh, wow, look at Saul. He's rich, he's powerful, he's good looking, all that stuff. In, in verse 25, it says, When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on top of the house. They arose early. It was about the dawning of the day. Samuel called to Saul on the top of the house and said, Get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go ahead of us. And he went on. So, hey, he's, this is me and you. Saul, man, on, man to man, get those guys out of here. This, they had a big entourage. But you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. So here's what Saul, Samuel says to Saul. Listen, buddy, life's about to change. You're about to become the king, and you're, you're going to love it. You're going to eat it up. They're going to love you. They're going to make you every. They're going to give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. But listen, buddy, you can, either, you can either use this for God's glory, or you can blow it royally. So Samuel's going to lay it out in front of God, Saul how to use this God-given platform for the glory of God. And, and I think we can learn something from this. Because in the grand scheme of things, all authority and all power ultimately belongs to God. Can we agree on that? All power belongs to God. God has it all and he, he divides it up. God has all the power that has ever existed and he, he loans it to you and me. If we get any bit of power or, 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 or uh, authority, it's because God has given us a small measure. This goes for any of us in our homes, in our jobs, in our churches, our communities, our countries. If you've got gifts and talents, God gave them to you. If, you. if you've got a bank account full of money, God gave it to you. If you've got treasures and possessions, God gave it to you. If you've got $1 or a million dollars, God gave it to you. If you've got an ounce of power or a whole boatload of power, God gave it to you. It's his, it's from him, it's for him, it's going back to him. Now, Saul kind of, you know, Samuel, you know, gives Saul a reality check because he's about to walk into this, this opportunity. He says, listen, buddy, it's all about stewardship. Stewardship is a, is a fancy Bible word that means, hey, we have been loaned power from God, loaned authority from God. A couple verses you should jot down and memorize on the subject of stewardship. 1 Peter chapter 4. 
as each has received a gift. That gift can be anything, material, it could be a gift, a talent, it could be an opportunity. As you've received a gift, use it to serve God or serve one another as good steward of God's varied grace, which means God's grace is different for all of us, but it's still God's grace. So what do you do with the gift that you've been given? You are a steward of God's grace. So whether you're speaking or serving or doing something with your strength, you do it, what does it say at the end of that? That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Stewardship, that's a word that you should memorize for 2024. You are a steward of God's varied grace. A parable that y'all all know very well, Jesus told it, the last one he ever told. Matthew 24, Matthew 25. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. And y'all know that he hands out bags of money. Ten talents, five talents, one talent. But that's just a, a symbol for talents, a symbol for gifts, a symbol for God entrusts us. God is a stu- giver of, of, of gifts. We are stewards. And what happens in the end of that parable? After a long time, a long time, you thought he would never come back, but he does. After a long time, the master comes and settles accounts. So guess what happens? With every bit of power, every bit of authority, every bit of possessions, all the treasure, all the money, all the talent, all the time, God says it's time that we look over the books. Because what you did with your life was really what you did with my possessions. So who we are and what we have is from God and for God. We will be judged according to how well we manage it how well we manage it, and how well we leverage it. Chapter 10, verse 1, it says that Samuel takes a flask of oil and pours it on Saul's head and kisses him and says, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Again, it's God's inheritance, God's possessions. So we've all been anointed by God for the life that we've been given to live. It's up to us to be mindful of this. We should remember him constantly and honor him always. So four words for 2024, manage and leverage. Manage what God's given you and leverage it for him. Remember him always, honor him always. Remember him, honor him. Manage, leverage, remember, honor. Unfortunately, Saul nor Samuel nor Israel would keep this in mind and we'll see how that plays out. Y'all know how it plays out. But as for us, the year ahead of us depends on our adopting and keeping this perspective. So what will it be for us in 2024? Will we manage and leverage, remember and honor? Will we keep our eyes on the Lord and pray, thy will be done? Or will we take the bait? Will we forget where it comes from and who it comes for? May we not be like Saul and like Israel. May we be a people that points to our heavenly father and says to him, Be all the honor and all the glory always and forever. And may our lives project that and tell that every single day. Every day we have a battle. Let's make sure we give it to God and win the battle by allowing his kingdom to rule in our lives. Let me pray for you. for the clarity that your word gives us, the insight that your word gives us. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us as Samuel got Saul and said, hey, I got to tell you how it is. Lord, thank you for doing that with your word. And God, may you protect our hearts this year.
as there's so many things trying to get us to put our faith in them all year long, may we not fall for that. We know better. We know that God is our refuge and our strength always. No matter what we are facing, he is there for us and we put him first. May we seek him first and may we follow you all the days of our life. We give you and surrender to you this day and every day forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.